The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I am thrilled today. Our topic is so exciting, and our guest is just, she's done an amazing job. We're going to be talking about a brand new documentary that has just premiered. It's called Catching the Sun, and we have the film's director with us today, Shalini Kantaya, and she is uh, amazing, in a word, <laughs> and you all will will understand that as we go through this interview, but she's looking at solar in a very different way in this film, and in fact, I watched it twice just to prepare for this interview, and she's talking about solar not just from the usual perspective of the technology and uh, the opportunity, but she brings in concepts like social justice and the democratization of our power system, and it's just beautifully shot, and in fact, if you want to check out the website. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But you could open up a new tab in your web browser and go to www.catchingthesun.tv and you can kind of check out what's going on with this film as we talk to Shalani. So welcome to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I just love your new film, Catching the Sun, and your film begins begins and ends in a place that I'm very familiar with. It's not far from where I live. It's in a town called Richmond, California, and I'd love for you to talk to us about why this particular city helps demonstrate the core message of the film. Well, Richmond is like a city like no other. Um, I, I actually reside in Brooklyn. I'm no stranger to sort of rough and tumble neighborhoods. But what I saw when I visited Richmond was sort of a symbol of what I see happening to American cities across the country. Um, Richmond boomed in the 1940s as a center of uh, manufacturing and industrial labor. It was the first place that African Americans and women got meaningful jobs in the 1940s. And then over the last two to three decades, those manufacturing jobs have vanished and left the community with really high rates of cancer and asthma and um, unemployment. And so um, what I discovered when I went to Richmond was here was a city living um, with Chernobyl-scale disasters uh, in, the, in the shadow of the Chevron oil refinery, which is particularly, uh, which, which is blowing up every few years. Yeah. And, and this community is, is living under fire. And so when I discovered the Solar Richmond program, I thought, you know, could cities like this that are so at the heart of the crisis could also be at the heart of the solution um, with building a new economy? And so that's why I found Richmond to be such a poignant backdrop. The other thing that I thought was so 
amazing to me is that Richmond feels socioeconomically a lot like Detroit, a little piece of Detroit. And yet it exists right across the bridge from Marin County, which is sort of the epicenter of the American environmental movement. And sort of seeing that incredible disparity um, between sort of what Van Jones calls the environmental haves and the environmental have-nots was so startling to really realize what communities pay the real cost of our energy. And so that was why um, Richmond made such a poignant backdrop for Catching the Sun. It really is sort of at the crossroads of, you know, what's happening with our with our energy system. I mean, this fossil fuel industry that they have. And as you said, you know, the, the refinery, it's it's caught on fire. It's blown up. It's had so many problems over the years. And one of the men that your film follows is from Rich, Richmond. And he says, you're not going to find any environmentalists in Richmond. People have way more concerns. And yet this is a community that has more than its fair share of health problems related to environmental pollutants. And what I found, you know, in my work, and I've worked in a lot of environmental justice uh, communities, this is not a really unusual attitude um, in these types of communities. And I'm wondering, Shalini, why do you think the term environmentalist seems so irrelevant to residents in these types of communities? Well, I think that. You know, obviously, Richmond does have strong environmental justice movements, but I think for people like Eddie, who is, you know, African-American, young man, sort of from a rough-and-tumble neighborhood, I feel for him, he really sees environmentalism as a thing of the privileged. And I think that has been shifting over time. But environmentalism in the traditional way was about having... um, you know, being able to afford, you know, solar panels on your second home. It was something that when your basic needs are met, you can start to think of these frivolous things like the environment. And I hope that in this film, you know, that the type of environmentalism that we think about changes um, to one, you know, I think what has been successful about the environmental movement in the U.S. is it's done an incredible job of moving from the margins to the mainstream. You know, my niece looks at me and says, Auntie, this, this, you know, goes in the recycling bin. I mean, it's been an amazing shift, I think, over the last decade. But I think what the next step in the environmental movement is sort of to create um, a movement that includes everyone. And I think mm-hmm. that's what Eddie was talking about, was, was one that speaks to working-class people and people of color as well. Mm-hmm. Where is my place to plug in? You know, your film follows somebody that a lot of people who watch CNN are probably very familiar with, uh, especially during this primary <laughs> season. He's on all the time. His name is Van Jones. And you follow him from his days leading Green for All mm-hmm. to the White House and through his resignation from the administration. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you came to know Van and why his story was important to the film. Well, Van was a longtime friend and sort of fellow activist, and I met him when he, uh, you know, was working on just getting, providing uh, kids with job opportunities and keeping them out of jail and working in Oakland, California. And sort of, uh, we were friends during that time where his New York Times bestseller, um, The Green Collar Economy, was sort of making headway and headlines. And when I first heard to read about this book, I thought, this is a trillion-dollar idea. You know, connect people who most need work with 
the work that most needs to be done in the world. And it was sort of on his suggestion that I came to to sort of visit the Solar Richmond program and just met these extraordinary individuals who came from neighborhoods with no economic opportunities. And I saw the light go on in their eyes when they... um, when they learned to make a radio play off of solar energy. And I saw them mm-hmm. beam with pride when they explained to their neighbor how much money they'd be saving. And so um, I feel like Van's narrative, you know, his story of him taking this um, idea to the White House, the film follows him actually uh, taking the idea of green jobs all the way to the White House when he gets asked to be um, the green jobs sort of advisor, uh, special advisor to the Obama administration, and sort of what happens to him politically in the process. And I think that was a big eye-opener for me. Mm -hmm. Well, and he's not the only one who has been damaged in this way. Even, you know, Republicans who've come out and said, I believe in climate change have been decimated in a very similar way. And it's amazing how that happens when you, you know, bring forth an idea that threatens the status quo in our current energy system. You know, before the White House took notice of Van, he was very well known in the Bay Area of California for promoting not just green jobs, but this idea of a green economy. And I'm not sure that all of our listeners understand what this term means. So help us understand this term, green economy. Well, the thing is, is that we have had a gray economy. We have we are running our civilization off of, of you know, fossil fuels, dead things, basically. And it's incredibly inefficient. Just putting aside the fact that 99% of our scientists agree that we need to reduce carbon emissions by 80% over the next, you know, mm-hmm. 40 years, you know, leaving that aside, the energy system we have is massively inefficient. We dig things out of the ground to burn them, to um, spin steam turbines, that we mm-hmm. then ship, you know, energy, you know, hundreds of miles from where we live. And the idea of having a green economy, to me, is about running our economy. Energy is the bedrock of our economy. And if we can shift the way that we... Um, the way that we make and use energy here in the United States, it would transform our economic system. And I think make us more economically competitive in the next century. Um, I think Van's idea of green-collar economy, I can't speak for him, you know, sort of is about creating not just blue-collar work, but green-collar work. You know, we were a country that sort of made things with our hands. Most of Americans did not go to college, but there were meaningful work opportunities in manufacturing, and that's also part of the green economy, sort of, uh, sort of working class jobs, you know, that, that make a better world. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's the thing, you know, this generation of college age folks are finding that, you know, college is incredibly expensive, and, you know, they're just shackled with debt and there are some kids who are starting to say hey if I could make a good living wage um, you know in a trade maybe that's the way to go and if that trade happens to be something that is advantageous for society i.e. clean energy what a great opportunity and Van talks about solving two problems at once he talks about addressing poverty and the climate crisis 
simultaneously through the establishment of a green economy. And your film, you know, shows that for some people that worked out really well for Eddie, you know, he, he, you know, got a job. But there was also another gentleman that had a difficult time after he went through the training finding a job. And I'm wondering what you think about this concept that converting our economy to clean energy would lift a significant part of the population out of poverty. I really believe it's possible. I And here's the, the sort of sexy idea that I learned in the making of this film. I, I came in like everybody else. I didn't know a thing about solar. I just saw some kids who moved my heart, and that sort of led me on this journey. But what I learned in the making of this film is that the fossil fuel industry has created a 1% in our um, in our society. It has consolidated wealth and power in the hands of very few people that run roughshod over our democracy a lot of times with their lobbyists and with everything else. And what I saw in solar energy was the idea that we could both democratize and decentralize our energy system. And I found solar to be this kind of subversive technology. I mean, it was thought mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, the greatest engineering achievement of the 20th century was the electrification of, of America, right? Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. at the same time, you can throw now a, a lowly solar panel on your house, and you become an independent power generator. And um, if you pass the right policy, like people are doing in states across the country, instead of you paying your utility a, a check, your utility can actually send you a check if you make more energy mm-hmm. than you produce. And I think that's why it's such a threat to the status quo. Um, the other thing that I think that is most ama- that's amazing about the, the economic opportunity of solving climate change is that it's all jobs and infrastructure. And it's, you know, the kind of non-glamorous work of energy efficiency. We, we waste about a third of the energy that we lose. And some of it is like solar panels. And none of that can be outsourced. That all is American jobs and, and people that need to um, work here in the U.S. And in the making of the film, you know, the solar industry has grown um, doubled size from 100,000 people to 200,000 people just in the five years that I've been making the film. There are more solar workers today than there are coal workers today in the United States. That's and, incredible. I did uh, not know that. It's a, it's a well-kept secret. And so uh-huh. I'd like to see more of the presidential candidates really talking about job growth through renewable energy. I love it. Shalani, this is fantastic. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with the director of this awesome new film called Catching the Sun. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. In case you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Today we're talking about a brand new documentary called Catching the Sun. And in fact, uh, you can check out the website for Catching the Sun at www.catchingthesun.tv. And our guest today is the director of the film, Shalini Kantaya. And she you might know her if you've seen the show On the Lot. It was a show by Steven Spielberg in search of Hollywood's net great director and she finished in the top 10 and you'll be able to see why immediately as you watch her film um it's it's just so appealing to the eye and beautifully done um that you'll want to watch it twice just like i did it was great um you know, Shalini, there are a lot of people who are pushing for federal public policy um, and, and exhausting a lot of resources um, in doing so to hasten a conversion from fossil fuels to solar. But your film had Danny Kennedy, who's the CEO of Sungevity, um, and he said that the cost of solar continues to drop and soon people will prefer solar simply because it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, after interviewing all the people that you did for this film, what are your thoughts on the need for federal legislation on clean energy? Well, I can say, like uh, many other citizens that took the streets um, for the climate march uh, in New York City, that um, we absolutely need federal regulation. Now, I also think that it's undebatable that we have the most ineffectual Congress in the history of American mm. governance, right? No doubt. And so, but I, I, and so I am like you in the sense, I'm sure many people listening, that, you know, we, where you feel like you cannot affect change on the, on the federal level. But I think there's a really hidden secret, and I think that the good news is, is that we can make this happen on the local and the state level. Energy is a local issue. Um, and we've seen smart states like California who've, who've sort of pushed aggressive policy on net metering, 
Um, California runs today off of 25% renewable energy. It is um, actively going to 33%, and this is one of the largest economies here in the U.S. And so um, I think the more that states can do this, that that a transition to clean energy can actually get done the way the right to marry got done, city Mm -hmm. by city, state by state, until the, the, the Fed, the federal government has no choice but to accept that this is the inevitable future. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's really exciting to see even cities that come up with climate adaptation and mitigation plans on their own. I mean, that, they're not all big cities like New York City. And I think even some of the smaller cities that are beginning to look at, you know, how can we, A, reduce our CO2 emissions and B, get ready for the way that climate change will be affecting us at the local level, those kinds of mindsets in the, you know, in local government, I think are going to make a big difference. Um, And they're going to end up attracting industry and jobs, you know, that will feed this public policy at the local level for clean energy. I was interested, you know, you you don't just cover U.S. folks um, and Americans in Catching the Sun. You've also got a couple of folks from China, and you talk about what China is doing to convert to clean energy. And you spent some time with a, China, a Chinese solar entrepreneur named Wally Zhang, and he's a man with big dreams. I enjoyed every section in the in the film about Wally. Um, talk to us about his and his company's accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Well, Wally is an extraordinary uh, Chinese entrepreneur, and I think he sort of turns any stereotype of what you think a Chinese CEO is on its head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he's just like a, a happy-go-lucky guy, and he sees himself as the Johnny Appleseed of solar energy, sort of spreading mm-hmm. it all over the world. And so I found him to be a fantastic character because he both wants to do good and he wants to make a lot of money. And I think that the thing that I applaud about China is that they have you know, still a planned economy. They actually plan for the future in China through their five-year plans. And two five-year plans in a row, they sort of put it in their, in their plan that they would become a leader in these sort of clean technologies of the future. And that spawned a lot of um, growth you know, in the states, provinces, and in cities for how they're going to make this change. And so people like Wally got low-interest loans. They got a, a host of incentives to um, sort of set China as a leader in this field, and that's really happened. In the last 10 years, China has gone from producing, you know, less than 5% of the world's solar to producing upwards of, you know, 85% of the world's solar, and that happened in a very short period of time. And so what we can really take away from China is how fast change can actually happen when smart policy is put in place. Absolutely. Uh, Wally's dream is to build a solar city, but I think the location it may surprise our listeners. Tell us about Wally's solar <laughs> city vision. I love this. Well, I, I followed Wally all over the world because he's probably in 30 to 40 countries every year. And um, one of the places that he really wanted to build a solar city in was Texas. And, it, it, and he talks about you know Rick Perry being his friend. But I think what's, what was amazing to me, um, you know, sort of without giving away the film, <laughs> is, yeah. that, is that, is that um, this is sort of the American dream. Like what, what mm-hmm. oil was sort of based on is like this big open field in Texas. And you see Wally walk out and really have this 
be living the American dream, but through solar energy. And it just, I think what was so poignant for me in sort of following Wally is really understanding that this is the inevitable future. That, you know, what Van says in the film, standing flat feet where we are right now, a hundred years ahead, we are going to make this transition because if we have a future, this is essentially it. And so um, what I realized is we can lead or we can follow, but people like Wally are choosing to lead and, and, and it's up up to the U.S. to sort of set aggressive policy that says we will be competitive in the clean industry technologies of the future. Um, and I think, I think that's what's been so disheartening, too, is that, you know, the U.S. has always sort of, uh, you know, taken pride in the fact that we are a country of innovators. Mm-hmm. And yet we are, we are clinging fingers and toes to last century's outdated technology, and so for me, solar is really about, you know, economic competitiveness in the industries of the future. I think that's a great perspective. And I, I mean, even in so much as some of our infrastructure, you know, it used to be the gold standard. I mean, our transportation and energy systems, you know, were the top in the world. But if you travel outside of the United States, you see better technology, mm-hmm. more advanced technology, and you come back feeling like, I don't even know if I live in a modern society anymore. And it's kind of disappointing. You know, I want to live in a modern society, you know. Uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I am sort of a, um, a bicultural citizen. My, my family is from India. And, you know, I would travel from, you know, Mumbai International to, you know, LaGuardia. And it was like going from the Jetsons to the Flintstones. You know? I know. It really and, does and, feel that way. And, it does. And so, I, I, I definitely have witnessed firsthand how, you know, other countries are putting infrastructure and mm-hmm. putting, you know, that as a high priority and that's making them more economically competitive. Absolutely. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in China and actually with one of the uh, people that you uh, interviewed in the film, Peggy Liu. She's the chairperson of JUICE, the Joint U.S.-China Cooperative for Clean Energy. I actually serve as one of the strategic advisors. Mm -hmm. And so I know Peggy pretty well. And she gives an interesting answer when you asked, what drives China to move so quickly to install huge amounts Mm -hmm. of renewable energy? She says, fear. Talk to our listeners about what she means by this. Well, Peggy's an incredibly um, insightful person, and 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 I think what she's talking about is what's motivating the Chinese government is actually the fact of their GDP. They've got a billion people. They've got less natural resources than the U.S. in terms of water, coal, almost every other energy source. And they are fueling the development of their country, more than a billion people, into the future. And so in order to sustain that amount of economic growth, and, you know, in China, because of the political system they have, to also prevent riots in the streets, mm-hmm. there has to be sustained economic growth. And that happens through energy. That is the lifeblood of any economy. And so if you, you know, you don't, you can't get your bread that morning or you can't open your factory because there isn't enough energy for a billion people, then you've got problems. And the same is true of of countries like India and China where you have this expansive need for energy. And, you know, where, where is that going to come from? And sort of that fear of what will happen if they can't deliver to their citizens. 
Absolutely. And, you know, Peggy also makes a very brief, but in my opinion, extremely consequential statement in the film. She says the only way to solve this problem and not create conflicts with other countries down the road is renewable energy. And that sends a shiver down my spine as a former military officer. There's both a warning and an invitation to opportunity in that statement. What were your thoughts when you filmed Peggy saying that? Well, I think that that statement is incredibly poignant and speaks to sort of why I'm passionate about this issue because I, I feel like it's one of those touchstones where if we can change our energy system, we can create a fairer and better world. And the thing that I thought is amazing is that we don't have to do business anymore with countries that don't let women vote <laughs> or drive. You know? mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. can actually, or, you know, give funding to places that create terrorism or any of these other things. We can actually create a more stable, peaceful world and not have to um, compromise the principles of our democracy in order to get energy from countries that we, frankly, shouldn't be doing business with. And so um, I thought that that was an incredible statement on just how geopolitics could shift and will shift Mm -hmm. um, with a transition to renewable energy. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, there's so much more to talk about uh, with this brand new film, Catching the Sun. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I want to give a big shout out to all my tweeps. If you would like to become one, just follow me at at Jill Buck. We talk about the show. We talk about all kinds of environmental topics. So check it out and join the conversation. Um, If you just tuned in, we're talking about a brand new film called Catching the Sun. You can check it out at www.catchingthesun.tv. And we've got the director with us today. Um, And Shalini has been talking about some of the various people that she has interviewed for this film. I just love it. I can't recommend it highly enough. I watched it on Netflix. So if you have Netflix, you can check it out there too. Shalini, your film touches on something that oil towns around the U.S. report routinely. And that's the fact that large oil companies invest quite a lot of money in local city council and mayoral races. Um, Catching the Sun references the fact that Chevron does that in Richmond's local elections. And Richmond is kind of a small town. And it's incredible the amount of money it takes to run for for office there because of these campaign contributions. I think everybody understands why big oil companies pay to play in federal politics, but what are some of the local issues that they're trying to influence with campaign finance? Well, it was just totally disconcerting that Chevron put, I think, almost a million dollars into one of the mm-hmm. elections for to influence the city council. Mm-hmm. And what happens there is through their lobbyists and through sort of campaign contributions and sort of backdoor things that they really seek to get tax breaks on their income taxes and for all of these other things. And so it, it you know, it pays for them to influence our democracy. And I think through the course of the film, you really see the influence of sort of 1% fossil fuel uh Fuelers like the Koch brothers, like the Saudi royal family, like, you know, and, and, and so you see that all over the world, sort of the, the monopolies that were built to electrify the country, you know, uh, and created these very entrenched interests between government and fossil fuel interests. And I think that, um, you know, as I said before, the exciting idea about solar is that we can actually democratize and decentralize our energy. And I think that starts on the local local level. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's so shocking when you when you visit Richmond is that you have this juxtaposition of one of the world's most profitable companies in a neighborhood of such incredible poverty. And you, you think, how does that happen? How can you have an industry in the town and not have like the world's most beautiful parks and schools and you know all of this how can that be and that's exactly why you know they're influencing local you know elected officials for tax breaks and the city itself that hosts Chevron and this refinery doesn't have the benefit at all of the wealth that that company has and it's really a stark an unbelievable thing, and you captured that so well in the film. When the way that you filmed the city, um, it, 
you know, you, you can't help but feel very sad for the people who live there and that they're not getting the benefit. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, for all the people who came out for Occupy, they should be coming out for solar energy, right? Yep. Because nothing is better for the 99% than becoming an independent power generator, putting solar on your roof, passing policy that puts money back in your power, that literally takes money from 1% utility companies and sort of puts it directly in the hands of the middle class. And I think that's the big exciting idea about solar. It is. And the CEO of Sojevity makes an interesting point in the film when he says energy policy is social policy. And Mm -hmm. I have thought long and hard about that. And I'd Mm -hmm. like for you to talk to us about what he means by that. Well, I think Danny Kennedy makes an incredibly poignant statement when he says energy policy is social policy. Because, you know, one of the struggles in making this film was how do I talk about energy in a way that matters to people? You know, Mm -hmm. I talk to my mom about climate change and try to explain to her, Mom, we put in carbon, when you flip a switch, this happens. And, you know, she's a first-generation immigrant from India. Her eyes sort of glaze over. (laughs) (laughs) And then I say, Mom, you know, if you put solar in your house, you can save 70 bucks a month. And then she's like, oh, you know. (laughs) And and so for me, it's really about um, how do we make energy a kitchen table issue? And I think some of the reason why it's so hard to talk about and why climate change seems so hard to deal with is that it it feels like something, and even environmentalism in general, it feels like something outside of ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like the environment and climate change and all these things, it's happening in some like far off world, (laughs) a galaxy Mm -hmm. far, far away. (laughs) And I think that when I began to really understand energy issues, I thought nothing could affect sort of the bread and butter of our daily lives and our energy system. And some of the struggle is sort of helping the public understand the kinds of policies that really actually impact our lives in big ways um, every day. And I think um, understanding that energy policy is social policy, that we can have a system that it actually benefits more people, that is, you know, not only just a cleaner world, but a fairer world um, through solar energy. Well, and it's, you know, one of the things that your film also touches on is the fact that it is possible. I mean, you know, if you watch certain cable news networks, when they talk about renewable energy, they will act as if it's not even feasible to power our economy on renewable energy. But I think, you know, your film shows that that's not necessarily the case. There's a a point in the film where Van Jones talks about federal cap-and-trade legislation. And I'm not sure that everyday Americans know what cap-and-trade is. I mean, even, you know, before the 2008 election, even Republicans like John McCain were getting on board with cap-and-trade, but I'm not sure that people really know what that is. Can you talk about why that's a concept you put in the film? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember that John McCain said climate change was real, that Mm -hmm. humans were causing it, and was for cap-and-trade. That was John McCain. And Absolutely. so I think that we, the Republican Party, has sort of lost their good sense um, as, you know, they were once very good leaders of the environmental movement. I mean, mm-hmm. Nixon passed some very, envir- some of the most important environmental legislation that we have as a country. Mm-hmm. I think, so cap and trade 
is the idea that we don't ask polluters to pay for the pollution that they cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think partly because it's so unseen, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the oil companies that are paying for our kids' asthma or the high rates of, of cancer. And so um, that we as a society, you know, Van says it best when he says, you can't pay to pollute. You know, if you go out and throw mm-hmm. some trash in the street and a police officer sees you, you're going to get a fine. Because yeah, this is a civilized society and you can't do that. And so for the first time, we have to say to people who are polluting, you need to pay for the pollution that you um, cause. And I think I, many environmentalists said cap-and-trade wasn't strong enough. I personally are for the cap, which says that we should cap carbon emissions, and every year you're going to bring that down less and less and less till we're done burning things for energy. Um, And then this idea of trade, which you you can sort of trade yourself among yourself, you know, uh, you know, polluters can trade among themselves credits for pollution Mm -hmm. until we're done with the system. Um, I think people like me who are a little bit hard-nosed would say a cap is great, the trade we're not so sure about, but Mm -hmm. let's start somewhere. (laughs) Exactly. We have to start somewhere about how are we going to aggressively bring our emissions down, especially now that we know that the U.S. and China account for more than 40% of the world's carbon emissions. I mean, this... um, the suffering that we are going to cause the rest of the world is enormous if we don't actually do this. And so um, I, I, I think that um, this is something that makes economic sense. And there's a way that we can tax polluters in a way that funds the things that we do care about. Um, we have a system now where we're, you know, we're subsidizing these polluters who um, – who aren't giving us a good public good. They're raising prices at the pump. They're getting our tax dollars. We're getting gouged on either side. And what we need is to start to tax the wealthiest industry in the history of the world and begin to use that money to transition to a clean energy economy. And it's it's not perfect. I mean, you saw in the film there's someone who doesn't get a job. I mean, this transition is... Um, sometimes bumpy. I mean, when we went from the the horse and buggy to the car, you know, when we started to um, go towards a more computerized world, there were some people that got left behind. But there's a smart way to make this transition, and I believe it will be the you know for the betterment of more people. Well, agreed. And I think it's one of those things. You know, you don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> like you said, you've got to start somewhere. And we have an example of this. I mean, the tobacco industry has been taxed and has been levied so that, you know, the pack of cigarettes has gone way up in price. And that, you know, excess price uh, has gone for things like health and uh, education and, and different programs to bring the smoking rates down. You know, that, the tobacco industry fought that tooth and nail, but it happened. And it was a good thing, and society decided that that was helpful um, because our health depends upon uh, good public policy, and we went forward with that. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Your film juxtaposes, and you mentioned this uh, before, the work that the Koch brothers have done to disparage renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And then you also have, and I love this lady who's in your film, a Republican in Georgia <laughs> who started the Green Tea Party. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a fissure in the GOP over green issues at this point? Well, I think there's a fissure in the GOP right now. <laughs> yeah, on but, many uh, levels, <laughs> for but sure. But that's a different story. I, I do think there's a, a fissure in the GOP. And I think this issue has become disturbingly um, partisan to me. You know, we used to be a country that could reach across the aisle and, and lead um, and, and, and work in the public good. And I feel like that is eroding in this country. And I think to me and to a lot of other people, that's very deeply disturbing. I do think that people like Debbie Dooley are incredibly inspiring. I mean, she's a Green Tea Party activist. I'm probably as left as they come. And we got along well. We couldn't talk about anything else. <laughs> so we got along really well. Leave it at and the what environment, Debbie has, you know? has, has, has showed us is that that's what you do. Agree on the things you do agree on and figure mm-hmm. out how you can work together. And so you have a Tea Party activist who worked with Sierra Club and took on the Republican Party, was attacked by the Republican Party in Georgia because she believed, you know, we might have different reasons. Her motivations are, tell me what is free market about a monopoly. She's yeah. like, this is, not, this is not free market economics. And so she really believes in solar energy for um, both because of, uh, she believes in climate change, which I think is you know, important to note. I, th- I think it's silly even that we're talking about belief in this point. You know, know, she accepts the I science know. of climate change. And also because she believes... Um, strongly in, in a free market for energy and breaking up these monopolies. You know, most of us get a utility bill every month, and whatever they give us, we have to. Pay, we have no choice but to pay. We don't have a free market for energy. Mm-hmm. And I think Debbie Dooley really shows that. Um, you know, there are even lots of Republicans that sort of want to go solar, and libertarians love this um, because it, it puts more power in the hands of people. Libertarians accept the Koch brothers, who are libertarians. By the way, they're not even Republicans. They fund them, but they're libertarians. So we've got to take a quick, quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have much more with Shalini, and we're going to be talking about Catching the Sun. You can check it out at www.catchingthesun.tv. Don't go away, folks. There's more right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are talking with Shalini Kintaya, the director of Catching the Sun, brand new documentary that's out. And Shalini, you had some great footage of the Paris Climate Talks. What was your takeaway from that event? Well, I think there's something heartful about, you know, it took us uh, 21 negotiations to come up with a non-binding deal. (laughs) But um, I I do think that there is something hopeful in in all of the world leaders saying, yes, this is the direction that we need to move in as a civilization, as a global civilization, and to have 200 countries sort of sign up to that. I think the next step is just making sure the Paris Agreement has teeth, and Mm -hmm. that comes from local and state and, and citizen engagement, and I really think there's so much at stake here that we just need ordinary people like you and me to go to their local city council meeting, write to their, their, their governor or their congressperson and say, you know, we demand clean energy choices. And, and I think that that change is really possible when we can do that. I totally agree. I think we have more power than we know um, when it comes to these issues, but it's just a matter of taking the time to engage. You know, Mm -hmm. civic engagement is so important. And I hope that if nothing else comes from feeling the burn the way that so many people have, that they will stay engaged um, and and keep the pressure on. You know, I caught at least two times in the film when the point was made that solar was originally an American innovation. Mm Why is that important, Shalini? Well, I think that, you know, it it has to do a lot about innovation and that no other country in the world has the kind of research and development opportunities in new technology like the U.S. I think it's something extraordinary about the U.S. And yet what we lacked, and, and what I learned is that, you know, solutions to climate change, to income inequality, they all exist. It's not technology. It's not a financial gap. It's just that we need smarter politicians to put smarter policy in place around mm-hmm. these issues. And I think sort of what I tried to capture in the film was this nostalgia for American greatness, mm-hmm. that we were a country that went to the moon, and that Kennedy stood before the nation and said, we're not going to do this because it's easy. We're going to do it because it's hard. We're not going to mm-hmm. do it because it's cheap, because it's expensive, and we're the greatest country in the world, and we're going to do that. And sort of setting that national target and rallying a generation of Americans um, in that task. And you think about the kind of investments that were made in the space race and the kinds of technologies that came out of the space race. Um, you know, the, the hip replacement that is in my mom's hip came out of this, that race to the moon. Yep, you know, that's the computers right. that we work with, the solar technology, all of the gifts of us setting an ambitious goal and deploying investments and policy, putting money in our, in our schools for research and, 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 um, development really made this leap forward. And I think that um, seeing now how, you know, an invention that the U.S. invented is now being manufactured mostly in China, you know, and 
other people are sort of benefiting because we've lacked the long-term policy has been sort of a cautionary tale. And so the film sort of both sort of plays to American exceptionalism and sort of turns it on its head. It's sort of that rub to say, are we still great? Are we really a nation that says we can we can come together across race, across gender, across class, and sort of have a higher vision for, for the U.S., that we can stand together and still do great things. I love that. I also love the fact that you included the People's Climate March and all the various types of peoples and issues that were there. You did a great job of showing the breadth of today's environmental movement and that it's not just a hippie thing. Mm-hmm. How do you hope that your viewers will react to images like that? Well, I think what I've really tried to do is create this unlikely set of characters that are changing, you know, transforming our our world. And um, I think to me, the world is about the early adopters and the workers and entrepreneurs in the U.S. and China that I follow in Catching the Sun have really dared to do something different. And I think to me, I've really sought to show an environmental movement that is inclusive, that includes people like my mom who may not, she, you know, she may not be outwardly sort of, um, vocal on climate change, but she would never waste food. She would never, you know, that's sort of mm-hmm. making climate change a kitchen table issue for for working Americans is really what is going to transform um, our future. Absolutely. And, you know, last week on Go Green Radio, uh, we had a guest who talked about the bipartisan nature of the environmental movement when it started really picking up speed, you know, in the first Earth Day. And he told a story of how Richard Nixon looked out, you know, of the the White House uh, windows to see this big march going on in Washington, D.C. for the first Earth Day. And some of the people were very well dressed. And he said to the people in the room, well, I think some of the people out there are Republicans. <laughs> and it was, you know, I mean, it was really this, wow, this is something that everybody cares about. And um, and everybody can find a way to get involved. Like you said, you know, it might be not wasting food. It might be not wasting water or energy. But um, connecting to the, the human face of, you know, what happens with, if we do well with this, you know, fork in the road, which way we'll go, or if we make poor choices and the human suffering that will be caused by that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very hopeful that everybody can find a way to get on board. Mm -hmm. You know, by the end of the film, I was ready to get up and do something to promote Mm -hmm. solar. What is the call to action for your audience? How can they engage with the film and then take it into their local communities? Well, I think we have the fight of our lives on our hands, and it's going to take all of us uh, going to our city council members and to our state representatives and saying we demand it. And the good news is if you show up at a city council member and you br- to your city council meeting and you bring 50 of your friends, guess what? People are going to listen. And that is the most amazing thing that I learned in the making this, of this film is that big changes start locally. And I think that was the message that almost every character in my film sort of embodies is that this big change is happening locally and through these small acts um, that we can all participate in. With the film itself, I hope people will go to catchingthesun.tv and host a screening. You can actually get the educational version of the film and you can screen the film in your community. And what I hope the film will do 
is sort of get all of the people in the same room. We just finished a 25-city tour. We had 10 sold-out shows. Every single one of those theatrical screenings, uh, we had local policymakers, clean tech businesses, and grassroots sort of boots-on-the-ground organizations because the film is a great way to sort of bring bring local um, coalitions together around the things that we care about. And so I hope people will not only screen the film, but throw a house party. We've got materials on CatchingTheSun.tv of how you can um, screen. We've got how-to toolkits. And so I hope people will use some of these resources and um, a tool to just um, not only think of this as a way to organize but also celebrate our collective power. I think that what makes different the, the difference in of Catching the Sun, I think, from other sort of gloom and doom um, climate films, which I'm a fan of, <laughs> um, is, is, that, is that this is about a celebration of our collective power, of the technologies of the future, and that solving the most important issues of our time, income inequality, climate change, can be a party of innovation and invention and sort of the technologies of the future, that this this is about hope. And I think the kind of hope that we saw in the election of Barack Obama, even if, you know, I'm, Lord knows we broke up on a lot of issues <laughs> over the last few <laughs> years, but mm-hmm. whatever you whatever you feel about him, the fact that we can have a president within 60 years of Jim Crow segregation, we can, mm-hmm. have an, we can elect an African-American um, president, shows that we are a country who knows how to move into the future. I and love I it. think that we, we just need to hold on to hope and, um, and celebrate that we can create a new future. Thank you, Shalini. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you for being with us on Go Green Radio, and thank you for uh, this beautiful documentary that you've produced. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.